Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 48, Moon Rocks. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So in this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. So today we're talking to the keeper of all moon rocks in the world, Ryan Ziegler. Well, technically they're all held here at the Johnson Space Center by NASA in the Lunar Curation Facility, but Ryan is the lunar sample curator here in Texas, and he's also a planetary scientist. We had a great discussion about moon rocks, like the reason why we brought them back from the moon during the Apollo program, more about the facilities that keep them, and also what we're still learning from them. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Ryan Ziegler. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light search for the red. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Ryan, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast today. I can't believe it, but we're actually finally going to talk about moon rocks. I know. I mean, you'd think this was a cursed subject or something. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's interesting because, and correct me if I'm wrong, all of the moon rocks that were collected on the Apollo missions are here, correct? The, uh, most of them are here. Most of them, uh, about, okay. About 85% are here or uh, maybe 80% are here, 5% are out with scientists, and about 15% are at a secret remote storage facility at White Sands. So, oh, okay. No, not that secret, I guess. So. <laughs> the secret's out now. <laughs> okay, so, but but the moon rocks were collected on just human missions, right? Not robotic missions? For, for NASA, yes. Okay, okay. So the, were there other uh, lunar acquisition, like yeah. robotic ones? So the Soviets okay. had three Luna missions, Lunas 16, 20, and 24, and they okay. collected about a pound of samples. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Robotically? Robotically, yep. Okay, very yeah. cool. Must have been a different profile. But we went a couple times, right? We did uh, we did Apollo you know, 11 through 17. Yeah, we had six missions that landed on the surface. So. Exactly. All right, a lot of moon rocks. So so let's talk about moon rocks themselves because you know, you, I, how I imagine it is just you know, gray rocks. But I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure as it, from a geologist's perspective, there are interesting ones and there are... There are not so interesting ones, and there was there was some decision making that went with the acquisition of them. No, right? absolutely, and yeah. and you're right though. If you look at moon rocks, most of them are kind of boring to look at. <laughs> I mean, they have a bit of an image problem. Uh, most of them are sort of gray rocks, but um, there's a few things about them that really set them apart. They're really old. They formed on a body with no atmosphere, so there's a lot of micrometeorite impacts into them. There's a lot of things that set them apart from Apollo's from uh, terrestrial samples, and so um, they are really interesting to scientists uh, for for a lot of those reasons. Yeah. For sure, definitely. So some of the first ones were collected from NASA on Apollo 11, yes. correct? Awesome. So how much, do you know how much they collected? It was about 25 kilograms, so about a little over 50 pounds. All right. Yeah. But I guess it felt different when they were actually collecting it, Well, right? one-sixth as much. Yeah, I know. I mean, everyone was super strong on the moon. It was great. You could jump super high, if, except for the spacesuits, I think. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what did they use to, uh, to collect it? Was it kind of... Bending over and picking it up? Or well, they couldn't bend over very well, and yeah. that was good for us because it kept them from touching them with their gloved hands because the gloves were a source of contamination. So they had specially oh. designed tools made out of either stainless steel or aluminum, and so they, like, basically one of those 
long claw things you see uh, that like the T-Rex with the two claw things. That's <laughs> kind of like that. Only NASA, so it was made out of steel. Okay. Uh, and so, and then they had uh, sieves and they had some rakes, and so they had a, a couple different instruments to uh, tools to help them collect them. Okay, and that was all planned ahead of time. They knew that the did they understand the surface of the moon before they went? They they understood it pretty well. Okay. Um, what they didn't they underestimated how important the impacts were on the surface. And on mm-hmm. Earth, impacts are a relatively minor thing because we've got an atmosphere. So you see shooting stars at night, and that's little sand-sized stuff being burned up. On the moon, all of that stuff hits the moon going several kilometers per second. So it's a much finer-grained place, and there's just... Yeah, so the tools they use evolved over time. Uh, on Apollo 11, they had one set, and by Apollo 17, they had a much more evolved set. They learned from uh, from being there and, and sort of uh, redesigned them on the fly, so to speak. Okay, that makes sense. You go on the surface, and you have people actually using the tools and then providing real-time feedback. Exactly. Hey, this worked, this didn't. I need this bigger, this smaller, this longer, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so when they collected them... Uh, what was that process like? Did they kind of put it into bags and seal them up, or was it like a, a bin? Um, on Apollo 11 especially, um, because they didn't collect that many rocks. I mean, 50 pounds sounds like a lot, but rocks are heavy. So yeah. they had a special box with a, with a metal-on-metal knife-edge seal that allowed them to seal them away. Okay. And so they would collect them with the tool, put it inside a Teflon bag, roll up the bag, and then the bag would go in the box. Okay. And then at the end of Apollo 11, just before they were sealing them up to put them inside, um, Neil Armstrong looked at it and thought that the box looked kind of empty so he got his shovel out and literally just shoveled a bunch of dirt into the box around all the other samples really it's almost as an afterthought and <laughs> it ended up being like 11 kilograms or something it ended up being almost a quarter of the sample they brought back whoa and it ended up being the largest single sample from apollo 11 and probably one of the most important and it was just he's looked at it and thought this is silly i'm gonna go all the way to the moon i'm gonna bring back a half full box of rocks so he shoveled some dirt in sealed it up and that came back on later missions, when they started collecting more rocks than would fit in the rock boxes, some of them came back just in the Teflon bags, sealed up tight, like cookies or coffee or something, but those probably saw a little bit of atmosphere. Oh, okay. You so know. the idea was to protect it from the Earth's atmosphere once it got back to avoid contamination. Exactly, but the boxes are heavy, and so they mm. couldn't bring 10 boxes to bring back all those samples, so um, they decided that for some samples, just being sealed up and minor exposure to air would be okay. Okay. So why, why did the dirt end up being one of the more important pieces of Apollo 11? Well, one of the things they didn't realize, because impacts are so important on the moon, and a lot of the material just gets spread around, and so the dirt, the soil, the regolith official is the, the technical name for it, is a really good average composition of a large area on the moon, whereas the rocks mostly come from that local area. So you collect the rocks, you learn a lot about the local area, you collect the soil, you learn about the local area, but also exotic stuff coming from farther away. Mm-hmm. And it being so big, and hey, us having so much of it, everyone wanted Apollo samples when they came back, and obviously we had a very limited mass, and so them bringing back more than they expected opened up new studies just based on mass availability, and we also used those as a goodwill sample. We Every country on Earth in 1970 got a um, piece of the moon as a gift that came from that soil, that, that, that big shoveled soil. They took out the bigger particles, put them in plastic, uh, took some flags they had flown to the moon, put it on a plaque, and they just handed it out to everybody. It was great, yeah. <laughs> Man, I wish I could. That, all, because, be awesome all because Neil thought to shovel in a, you know, because we're, we're, we're real close, so yeah. I can oh. call him Neil. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, all because he had the, you know, the foresight to, to, to do something like that. Exactly. So what was interesting about the Sea of Tranquility whenever they were picking a location for Apollo 11? Um, honestly, I, I, I think it really came down to safety. I mean, they had some really strict oh. constraints. They first 
first time they they wanted something near the equator so they use less delta v less less fuel they wanted something flat so they didn't have to worry about landing on you know a crater which they almost did anyway and they had to avoid it mm -hmm. um so a lot of it came down to it had to be on the equator and it had to be flat and then they used spectroscopy they looked at the light that was bouncing off the surface and trying to find a place that was slightly unusual and it turned out sea of tranquility had a lot of titanium in it and so the light bouncing off it looked a little different and so they thought let's go try that place and then when they went to 12 they had similar constraints but they went to the other end of the spectrum and they got low titanium basalts and so you know science wasn't driving the landing sites at that point but they were still trying to maximize how much science they could get out of it. Right. You know, priority one was safety. Yep, priority two was, all right, in terms of the safest areas we could land, this one is also Exactly. That's how they did it. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what's uh, what was interesting about titanium then? Um, on Earth, in, in, I mean, this is sort of technical detail that almost no one's going to care about, but on Earth, <laughs> the, you know, basalts only have a weight percent of titanium, 1% titanium. And on the moon, that's 8 or 9% titanium. And it tells you about the interior of the moon and what was melting to form these basalts. And it's quite different than Earth. Earth. And so it was telling us about how the moon formed and evolved uh, all from one rock on the surface. And it wasn't the whole story, but it sure got things moving in the right direction. All know? right. Otherwise, we've been wasting our time for 45 years. <laughs> well, then, so that was just a piece of the story. And then you went to, we went to different areas to kind of... You know, we have these Apollo missions. Let's use them to our fullest exactly. advantage. Let's figure out this story of the of the moon. So, what were some of the decisions? And you said Apollo twelve was uh, lower titanium, but what were some of the other decisions for the later missions? So, for the later missions, if you look up at the moon at night, and this is super basic, but there's dark parts and, and light parts. And the first two missions went to the dark parts. Those are mare basalts, like you would get in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was the bright parts, which actually make up about eighty percent of the moon. So they need they were like, we need to go to one of these bright parts and see what make up the highlands. And so, same constraints. Apollo fourteen landed pretty close to Apollo 12 near the equator but in the highlands and then they got those samples back and realized wow everything's an impact everything's a breccia a rock made of pieces of other rock it's like a jigsaw puzzle almost Wow. and then um, after that when they got to 15 16 and 17 those were the J missions so they had a rover they had much more they had better suits they had a lot of other stuff and so then they were able to go to more technically challenging sites that were at the junction between the bright parts and the dark parts mostly and so also I mean I'm sure you know this and I'm uh, all of the pilot, all of the Apollo astronauts were pretty much test pilots. Mm -hmm. So this landing on a flat bit, I don't think it was doing it for them. And so <laughs> Apollo 15 and Apollo 17, when you hear the astronauts talk about what it was like to land there, like landing in this little narrow valley on Apollo 17, and on Apollo 15 landing and coming over this huge mountain, and then having to get down really fast and land onto before the big canyon. Canyon. Yeah, you know. And so you know they were able to do more uh, technically challenging things with flying too. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was that was their thing, right? Yeah. But then on uh, was it Apollo seventeen? Jack Schmidt. Now you you finally have a geologist, right? Right. I mean, and Jack had played a really important part. I mean, Jack comes to all of our science conferences. So Jack has a PhD <laughs> in, in geology. He's way smarter than I'll ever be, uh, and he still comes to all of the um, all of the uh, the conferences. And uh, many many uh, uh, many a debate ends with, well, when I was on the moon, and that's when you know you've lost the argument because <laughs> you really know. Well, when I was on, you know, you don't get to use that. No, Jack was there, and so he was able to help select the sites. But when they were on the ground, he was, you know, everyone got a basically a master's degree in geology as part of their training. But he already had a PhD and was one of the people who trained the other astronauts in geology. And so he really um, was able to spot and collect things from a different perspective. Okay. And was did he have a part in deciding where they were going to land and what things to pick up and bring back? I, I'm sure he did. And, yeah. uh, I mean, he, he started to tell the story at a meeting. 
a couple months ago about, well, that's not how we selected that site. And he never finished the story. So I don't have the whole story oh, yet. Man. But I don't think the sites were selected that far ahead of time as they were leading up to a new mission. The scientists and Jack, because he's one of the scientists, would get together and talk about where they wanted to go from science science priorities. And then the mission safety people would be like, yeah, we're not landing in the middle of Tycho Crater. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> and and then there would be some back and forth. And uh, But yeah, no, Jack was definitely part of that discussion. Okay, cool. So what were, uh, what were some of the... Besides titanium, what were some of the more interesting things that you found? Because there's a finite <laughs> number of samples we have yep. from the moon, right? So what were some of the most interesting things that we found from those samples? Well, um, they're really old. I mean, and, yeah. and that's it sounds very basic, but essentially every rock from the moon is older than every rock on Earth. It's not perfectly true. There's some overlap in the middle. There's like four places on Earth where they're that old. But it turns so the moon is just an ancient body. The fact that everything was either a volcanic process, so basalts like what you'd see in Hawaii, or uh, breccia, something from impacts, that threw people off. There was no water on the moon. That's not true anymore, but compared to terrestrial rocks, which every rock you pick up on Earth has a mineral with water in it, and they couldn't find any water in lunar samples until about 10 years ago. And it was only when instruments had evolved to the point where they could measure lower concentrations and new scientists came along and said, this doesn't make sense. We need to re-examine these. And so there was a little bit of mist from earlier, but the moon's a very dry place and that, that throws people off. So you said there's parts of it. You said it's not true anymore. 10 years ago, we discovered there's a little bit of water on the moon. What was the instrument that found that and where is it? Uh, it was something called the SIMS, the Secondary Ion Mass Spectroscopy. And so what you do is you take the sample, you bombard the surface with ions, um, either positively or negatively charged, and then that sputters off what's there. And before we were using an electron probe where you're doing essentially the same thing but with electrons. And um, uh, they just they started looking at a mineral called apatite. And, and every other planet where you find that mineral, there's water in it. And then when they started looking at the moon, there was a fair amount of water in it. And so, and it was one of those cases where the the analytical instruments in the 70s were very good, and Apollo helped revolutionize them. But the little bit of water, the, the little bit that was missing, they just assumed was analytical error, and it was very hard to directly detect water because you're not doing it by mass, you're doing it by um, by energy. And so, anyway, so they so this, these new instruments, which weren't new in the in the 2000s, they were invented in the in the 80s. But by the 2000s, when new scientists came along, that's when they started to figure it out. Okay. Isn't it uh, also true that there are, on the polar ends of the moon, there are uh, what's shaded areas that have, I guess, never seen the sun? Are there p- deposits of water there, too? Uh, almost certainly. Oh. Uh, we, we have limited direct evidence of that, but we have a lot of circumstantial evidence. There's extra hydrogen there. So what's the hydrogen there as? The, you get a uh, different radar backscatter out of there, and one of the only things that causes that is ice. And so um, they did have the Elcross mission, which which landed in one of these permanently shadowed regions, put up a plume of debris, and then it flew through it. And, and they did detect water. And so we do have some direct evidence. but So that's a different kind of water. So I'm talking about water that came from the interior of the, of the, of the planet. And the water that's at the poles probably is from comets and meteorites slamming into the surface over time. And the ice that's in that sort of migrating along the surface and then freezing down in these cold areas. And so I, you know, I'm talking about intrinsic water to the moon versus external water. The external water might be more interesting for like refueling spacecraft someday. Intrinsic water, it's very minor, and so it's always going to be of geologic interest, but probably not uh, uh, economic importance. <laughs> I see. So when you say that you were looking at rocks and using these instruments to find little, you know, use a different type of method to discover the water inside the rock, that was here 
on Earth, right? That was that, here. Was all that of that was done on Earth. In fact, the um, in the Apollo missions, I mean, you see the Mars missions now, and they have rovers, and they do all these cool measurements on the, on the Mars. They didn't do that on, on Apollo. They had some surface experiments where they did some geophysical experiments on the surface, but that was on the moon as a whole and not on the rocks. The rocks were really not studied until they came back, because anything they might have done on the surface could be done much better back on Earth. And since they knew they were bringing the rocks back anyway, they didn't spend any mass or time or energy on that. They just collected the rocks and brought them back. Plus, you risk the the chance of contamination. Exactly. Too, right? I mean, we, we have a lot of talk now about, you know, what what could be done on samples, like, on the way back. And the answer is always, like, don't touch those samples. Just bring them back. <laughs> Just don't touch the samples. We'll, we'll do it when you get them back, Aaron. And we is not me and we is not NASA. We is this the larger scientific community on the planet. And so I, I keep using the, the royal we. And as my dad always asks, do you have a mouse in your pocket? Uh, no, it's just, you know, it's a very large and active science community that studies all these samples. Well, and the and one of the more important parts about that is there is a finite number of samples that you have, right? There is. Yeah. There is. So uh, whenever they're bringing these uh, samples back, the story from the Apollo days, what were some of the facilities that they were bringing them back to? What were some of the methods to make sure that they were acquired safely and properly? Um, so they had designed Building 37 here at Johnson Space Center was the Lunar Receiving Lab, and they finished that. 1967, so a couple years before it came back. Because they had no real idea what lunar samples were like, and because everyone has read World War of the Worlds, they actually designed it as a quarantine facility. And so both the astronauts and the samples went into quarantine for 21 days after Apollo's 11, 12, and 14 to make sure all the bugs from the moon didn't kill all life on Earth. And now once they got to the surface and they realized there was no water and really no atmosphere, and they already knew that, um, they're like, there's no bugs in these samples. <laughs> but through an abundance of caution for the first three missions, they kept the quarantine going. And so that was a facility designed to keep everything in, so everything leaked in. And the problem with that is everything leaks in on the samples, and we're trying to keep the samples clean. And so once they realized, no, this isn't, you know, this isn't a concern, we're not trying to keep the bugs in, uh, they redesigned laboratories in the building next door in Building 31, and within about three or four years, they moved over and put most of the samples there in a positive pressure laboratory where everything leaked out and everything leaked away from the samples. And the samples were stored in glove boxes surrounded by nitrogen, and no one ever touched them, no one ever breathed on them or coughed on them like me. And so, yeah, so that, that, was, that was a pretty quick change they had to make. Okay, so some of the later Apollo missions, the samples collected from those, I guess, have some of the more pristine samples that you have here? Uh, because of this method? I, sort of. I mean, okay. there's more of them, and so some of them were able to be held in reserve, uh, but all of them originally came back and were opened and, and, and initially analyzed in, their lunar, in the LRL, in the Lunar Receiving Lab. Um, and then it wasn't until like 73, 74 when all of the samples got moved over to the next, uh, to the next thing. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then the actual study of, or the actual process of studying them, mm -hmm. what's that like? What is, what do you do to actually figure out what's inside? Wow. Of there's so many different studies. So I've been oh, the yeah. Apollo curator for about six years now and I've had almost 400 individual requests to analyze samples. So I'd like to go through them one by one. No. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah, no, it could be a long podcast. Yeah. No. Um, if you, if you look at all of the collections in total, a lot of effort goes into dating the samples and you would think, yeah, we already know the date of them. Well, as instruments and scientists get better, um, oh man, uh, the, um, <laughs> the uh, the way they age date the samples has been refined over time, and there's a couple different camps still trying to figure out exactly the age of the moon. A lot of study has been on the new water they found, but there's even esoteric things, like um, a guy in the UK wanted samples to do spectroscopy to figure out if he could see life on planet on exoplanets. 
And so all life on Earth has a chirality. It's all left-handed or right-handed, and I'm not a biologist, so I don't remember. But if you look at the light that reflects off an atmosphere with that light in it, it can have a chirality to it. And so they're from orbit in Earth. They're trying to do that. And one of the main sources of contamination for them is light bouncing off the moon. So he needed to see what light bouncing off the moon looked like to put into his equations to understand uh, whether they could see life on exoplanets from their atmospheres, from spectroscopy of their atmospheres. And so everything, I mean, everything in between. It's just crazy how diverse Apollo samples and samples in general can be used. So it's fair to say you're still studying them though, right? Oh, absolutely. This year, I, you know, we have a new batch of requests just came in and we have 36 new requests for the, to be considered by the committee that, that reviews all of these and they'll do that next month. So wow. I, they might find out about it on here. They don't know how many we got. So they might be a little <laughs> dismayed at how much work they have to do. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll put this out a little bit later so we don't have any spoilers. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's, they, they wouldn't listen to me anyway. <laughs> Um, okay, so so when you're cracking them open, and, and some of the some of the first times you were actually you now you have scientists that have their hands on these lunar samples oh, the first not. time. Well, <laughs> oh, okay, they have they have protective gloves, yeah, exactly. gloves yeah, yeah. Sorry, and sorry, sorry. proper equipment <laughs> to uh, analyze the samples for the first time. First time humans have ever done that. What were some some of the first things that they wanted to look at, and some of the first things that they found? So some of the very first measurements that were done after the Apollo 11 samples came back were actually done here. So the, the oh. LRL was both the con, con, um, con, containment facility and the curation facility, but it also had a certain number of um, uh, built-in um, uh, instruments to do some of these initial preliminary examinations. And one of them was to look at the radiation in the sample. Now everyone hears radiation and thinks Chernobyl. Or, no, what they're trying to see is the natural radiation that every rock has. And so they built a special pit underneath Building 37 that was lined with dunite, a special type of rock from Earth, battleship armor from pre, pre-nuclear tests, so that it could drive down the low levels of natural background radiation, put the samples in front of a detector, and, and then see just how much radiation was coming off of these. And so that was one of the very first things done. They had a gas lab to see what kind of gases came off it, whether there was, a, you know, measuring the solar wind. Um, so it was, it was measurements like that that were initially done at Johnson Space Center. And then almost immediately after those initial measurements were done, they went out to, I think, 50 or 60 different groups around the country who were pre-approved, and they all had different stuff they were doing. Unbelievable. So I guess to, to work with this and to find out something specific, right, if you wanted to find out something more about radiation, there's something special that you have to design, something special that you have to do. It's not just chiseling at it and looking at it and say, ah, there's the radiation. There's like this huge, this a very unique type of experiment and facility that you have to design. To right. And that particular facility was both expensive and time consuming. And so that was the kind of thing that NASA was going to take on mm-hmm. where, because they could use Apollo money on it. And then other things that didn't require quite such specialized equipment, that could be done better by the experts in those individual fields at the different universities and other institutions. There you go. Okay, so I'm I'm assuming that one of the main objectives when you have these samples of moon rocks is to find out what happened to the moon? What was the formation of the moon? So does some of your findings support giant impact theory? I think at this point, pretty much all of the findings support giant impact. Now there's still, I mean, there's still a little bit of debate about how big the impactor was or the exact timing or, but as far as I know, and I go to all these conferences, whether I like it or not, um, (laughs) and here, you know, keep an eye on these guys. And uh, no, I mean, everyone, no one's arguing about at these science conferences, whether there was a giant impact. They're arguing about the details of the giant impact. I know there are one or two holdouts. Outs, but that, that 
they are being increasingly marginalized just by the sam- by the data that's coming off the samples. So, so we can pretty much sit down and say, yeah, it was some kind of giant impact theory that formed it. At this point, yes. I mean, although if you'd asked me 10 years ago if there's any water on the moon, I would have said absolutely not, and everyone <laughs> agrees on that. And so, um, but there's physics involved here, and I don't understand physics because I'm a geologist, but I mean, the angular momentum of the Earth-Moon system and the, the spin and, and, and all that, that's really hard to do any other way, and that's not going to change. Like, we're not going to learn how to measure angular momentum based better. So I, I, I don't think the giant impact is going away. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. So kind of going back to some of the facilities that you have, I'm imagining... I'm imagining these guys in gloves, and you said, "Oh no, they're not going to be touching it. They're going to be wearing proper equipment, and they're going to be using, you know, they're going to make sure that not, nothing's going to get contaminated." What does that look like? What is this? Uh, you say bunny suit. Well, so in our lab, if you want to come and study the samples, so yeah, you would fill it on a full bunny suit. Think white polyester suit, head to toe. Okay. Basically, a pair of coveralls, cloth gloves, a hat. Not we don't have to wear a mask most of the time, and and then overboots, and then you go into a laboratory that's sterile, not sterile, because they're that's very clean, and uh, <laughs> then the samples are inside uh, the the cabinets, and then you put your hands through neoprene gloves, and then if you needed to handle the samples themselves, on the inside of the neoprene gloves, excuse me, you would put Teflon gloves. And so you could only touch the samples with Teflon or aluminum or steel. So you would have to actually handle the samples in our laboratory through three layers of gloves inside of a controlled atmosphere cabinet. <laughs> yeah. And so now not everyone in their own lab has to do that because we have to keep the samples ready for anyone to do anything as near as we can. If somebody knows that they're not going to contaminate the samples by handling them in air. When I did this at Washington University in St. Louis before I came here, we had a, a clean flow bench. We would take the samples that JSC sent us, we would open them, we would pour them out, maybe rinse them off with acetone to get some of the dust off, pick them up with tweezers, never touch them with my hands, despite what the pictures show. And then um, we would get them ready and we would send them off to the reactor to do, to do, uh, to do uh, measurements and stuff like that. So clean space, Controlled atmosphere, uh, but not a controlled atmosphere. Sorry, not not inside of a nitrogen glove box. And that's most people don't have the glove boxes we have. They cost a quarter of a million dollars each, and there's all this infrastructure that goes into it. So wow, yeah, no, take your moon rocks very seriously. You, yeah, well, we spent twenty four billion dollars to bring them back. We yeah. ought to we ought to keep you know we're trying to keep them safe for for long term. Exactly, and like you said, you're still studying them. There's still a lot of things to be discovered. So the last thing you need is to is to waste any of the samples you don't get to have two bad days in curation you have one bad you can't uncontaminate a sample if something goes wrong and water got on the samples it's always going to have had water on it and it will eliminate certain number of measurements and so no we, we yeah you're right we do we have procedures i mean i used to make fun of procedures before i came to nasa now i really make fun of procedures but i understand why they're important and why we have them and so oh, yeah. yeah we have like 160 of them to run the lab and all the different things we have to do to them yeah wow yeah yeah Yeah, auditors love us because we've got everything written down it's great yeah (laughs) okay so then that brings me to the thought that there's a finite number of uh or finite amount of moon rocks that you have so how do you keep track of it how do you make sure that you have that you're taking advantage of this finite amount with great effort um (laughs) so every uh sample that we loan to a scientist to do study on to do a study on um we keep track of and everything's alone and they have to return it so if they destroy it as part of the analysis then great and they they better have had permission to do that uh then that's great we we mark that off but anything else they would study and they would come back and so once a year i send them all an inventory and they have to check off and say yes i have all these samples or no i don't in which case 
bad things happen and no one ever says no I don't they're very very conscientious and so uh, 125 inventories a year get sent out and I have to you know we all we all take care of it and we do an, an internal inventory with JSC security where once a year or once every other year they come by and they ask us to find every sample for them and so Whoa. yeah no and so we have to meet the same bar as everyone else just every other year because we have a hundred thousand samples and most scientists have 50 or a hundred so so the interesting thing about uh, the moon rocks is that you're still you've collected them so long ago, but you're still finding stuff out, right? And Absolutely. so, so what are the, some of the more recent findings that you've been having? Well, one of the more recent findings that that has come out uh, in the last uh, five or six years was that perhaps the solar system didn't form the way we originally thought it did. Hmm. People noticed that there was a preponderance of samples on the moon that are 3.9 billion years old. Now, the age itself doesn't matter to you or me, but within the solar system, they were all formed by giant impacts. Now, 600 million years after the solar system formed, there shouldn't be a bunch of giant impacts. Everything should have quieted down by then. So for to explain the lunar samples, they had to come up with a new dynamical model for the evolution of the entire solar system. So originally, it was the, the new one was called the Nice model because it was formed uh, by a bunch of scientists in Nice, France, which I hope is true, or I'm going to get phone calls. Um, <laughs> At, and uh, and that said that uh, Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune all formed in much closer to the sun. They gravitationally interacted, and then they spread out 3.9 billion years ago. And when they did that, they took all of the asteroids and comets and spun them around the solar system, and that caused the giant impacts. Oh. Now, people don't like the Nice model anymore. Now they have something called the Grand Tack model. But it doesn't matter. Any of the models for planetary formation actually have to explain the ages that we see in the Apollo samples. Now, the ages themselves are actually old. They figured that out early on. But no one noticed how many ages were 3.9 and put two and two together uh, with what it meant for the solar system as a whole until more recently. And so, you know, so when people ask me what moon rocks can tell you about, I say, well, where Jupiter formed. And they always look at me like I'm lying. <laughs> well, it's I'm kind of amazing how we can find so much about our solar system just from studying so close to home. I've had a couple conversations with some uh, some of the meteorite sample curators. And, like, I, I talked with Duck. I talked with uh, uh, Dr. Burton, Dr. Freeze. So oh, yeah, I've a bunch of characters there. Yeah, yeah. I've had conversations with all of them. And just the stories that you can find from analyzing these rocks are fantastic. And it's really nice because the meteorites are all really old. So almost all the meteorites are older than all the Apollo samples, and all the Apollo samples are older than the Earth. And so each of them gives you a different window into uh, how the solar system formed. And if we only had one, we wouldn't know the whole story, or even if we only had two. Having all three is really important Absolutely. to understanding how things work. So looking towards the future, um, are there missions that you are kind of planning for for possibly extra curation missions or or uh, anything that is going back to the moon to analyze something new? Well, I mean, there was just a big announcement yesterday, obviously, that you know NASA is refocusing on the moon and I think want to send people back to the moon. And oh, there yeah. was some talk about robotic missions, both to do in situ science, science on the surface, but also to hopefully bring back some samples. Um, I stayed at WashU uh, to uh, be part of the Moonrise team, which was a New Frontiers mission, so a billion-dollar mission to bring back samples back from the far side. Uh, we came in second twice to Juno and OSIRIS-REx. I'm not bitter, uh, especially <laughs> while I was at the Juno at the at the OSIRIS-REx launch. Um, oh, no, man. and then this most recent time, uh, they just downselected uh, Caesar and Dragonfly as the finalists for the next round of New Frontiers. So. It, Moonrise won't go either. But within those two, Caesar is a sample return mission. It is a sample return mission from the surface of a comet. 
So there was the Rosetta mission by Europe, and it went and it you know it did, went into orbit around an, a comet, and then it sent a lander and then studied that. And I don't know that much about it, and I don't know that much about Caesar yet because it's brand new. But <laughs> their plan is to bring back samples from the surface, both gas and ice, and I think rock samples back from the surface of a comet to Johnson Space Center, where we will curate them. So we're gonna have to figure out how to curate gas and and ice. Oh yeah. And it's not that we don't have an idea. We do, but we have never had to do it before. And so we're gonna spend the next. Luckily, we have about 15 years to build up the capabilities to get ready for that. Okay. So capabilities in terms of facilities. Though. Right. So I mean, keeping ice cold is easy. There's lots of ice labs around the country. But if you want to treat that ice like we treat rocks, where you're gonna subdivide it, and that's different. If you want to work on it cold. That's harder. And also there's cold and then there's cold. So minus 20, great. That's easy. We do that with a freezer. Minus 80, uh, that takes robotics and a lot more. And even a minus 160, like do you really want to keep it like the temperatures on the comet itself? And these are things we still don't know all the answers to and we don't even know the requirements yet. But this is going to be what we spend the next decade figuring out. Okay. All right. Well, best of luck to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. going to be a long yeah. process. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. That was that was fantastic uh, to, uh, to learn about everything, all these moon rocks. I've been dying to have this conversation. Uh, it was my pleasure. <laughs> fantastic. And uh, it's crazy what the moon rocks can tell you just from from looking at these and that we're still finding stuff out and just you know this the story of water that has to you have to rethink these th these thoughts that and and findings from from decades ago because there's something new that we found so it'll be interesting to see what comes up in the future yeah absolutely all right very cool right. thanks for coming on all right my pleasure Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Ryan Ziegler about moon rocks and the facilities that are keeping them. And honestly, we're still learning so much from these rocks. If you want to know more about the rocks, you can go to the ARIES site. That's our astromaterials group. It's aries.jsc.nasa.gov. You can go to that site also to find out how to get your hands on a meteorite sample if you actually want to study meteorites or moon rocks. On social media, you can follow the NASA Johnson Space Center accounts or the Astro Materials accounts. They have their own on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can go to any one of those accounts and use the hashtag AskNASA uh, to submit an idea or question uh, for the show or for, I guess, any other reason. But if you want it to be brought right here on Houston, we have a podcast. Just make sure to mention the show, and then we'll actually bring it on, maybe answer it, or dedicate an entire episode to it. We have done it in the past. This podcast episode was recorded on February 14th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Tracy Calhoun, and Jenny Knotts. Thanks again to Dr. Ryan Ziegler for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.